Okay, I'm glad you're here. Um, lots to talk about. We're still in the just the uh, this wonderful section of the Torah dealing with the with our holy fathers and mothers, and um, I actually want to start with uh, with with something that the beginning of Parshas Chayes Sarah, which is talking about the the death of Sarah. But, you know, just to show you just the, the brilliance, the, the infinity of the Torah, really, the discussion of the, the, the passing of, of, of Sarah is, is the headline is the life of Sarah. And, and not only um, the life of Sarah, but, but it's chaye, which is plural, which means the lives of Sarah. So already the Torah is telling you so much, which is that death is not an end. And that there's more to, um, to life than just this world. Because the lives of Sora suggests a couple of things. It's, it's very sort of multi-layered. Not just that one has a life in this world, but that one has a continued life on into the next world, even after their death. So that's one aspect of the lives of Sora, meaning that we all have lives in this world and the next. Not only that, but within this life, we have many lives. You know, we have our childhood, we have our middle age, we have our old age, you know, and each one is like a different life. I remember um, my father uh, told me that he was visiting with my sister one time, and she had, at this point, I, I guess three daughters, and I think one was something like two, and one was something like five, and the other was like ten or eight or something like this, and he says... He, he told me that, you know, I was looking at them and I realized that each one of them inhabit completely different universes. You know, because one's level of perception as one gets older, even as one advances, you know, to, to the end, how they understand the world is completely different. And especially as you go through significant milestones in, in cognitive development. Um, and I heard one time from uh, Rabbi Green that 99% of life is in your head. <laughs> Meaning to say that a lot of times the, the life that you lead is, is, is the life that you want to lead. I, I, I think so often we, we really have to monitor the choices that we make. That at a certain, certain points we get to like, sometimes they happen so quickly in terms of our emotionality, and we're going to talk about emotions in a moment. But sometimes they happen so quickly in our emotionality that we, we kind, of, kind of blink and it's already happened around us. But sometimes there's this slow motion descent into a mood. <laughs> like one sort of like creaks toward depression. And when I say depression, depression, um, I'm not talking about clinical depression right now. I'm talking about sadness or giving up or a sense of defeat. I'm, I'm not talking about something that, that needs um, uh, medical attention right now. And, and there comes a moment, oftentimes, where if we're sensitive to our moods, we can understand that at a certain point, we're actually making a choice to become depressed, or a choice to become unhappy, right? Or a choice not to stay happy. There's a lot of more control that we have over our emotions than we give ourselves credit for. And with that as an introduction, let me go into something in the Parsha, which is very interesting. We often talk about when the Torah uses large letters or small letters. 
I think the last few times we've discussed large letters. And of course, just to remind you, because it's like one of these great sort of like lesser known pieces of Torah wisdom, in the name of the Chassam Sofer, one of our great Torah scholars, Torah giants, he said, anytime you see a large letter in the Torah, it's four times the gematria of what it would be otherwise. So in other words, like the big bays of Brachius. So normally we say that bays is two, but, but here you see it as eight now. And now with that in mind, you can see all sorts of fascinating different levels in the Torah. But now we're going to talk about a small letter in the Torah. And that's the letter Chaf, which sort of looks like, um, in English, if the, like the letter C, um, if you need to picture it. But the letter Chaf, um, in, the, in the word Kosa, which means to cry, like to, to wail, basically, is how it's translated here in the Art Scroll Chumash. But it's talking about Avraham's mourning over his wife Sarah. So he's, he's really crying. But interestingly... This letter Chaf, which is right in the middle of this word for like really crying, is made small. Now, Rav Hirsch, Rav Shimshin Rafoil Hirsch, mentions something very interesting. He says, so why is that the middle letter of that word, right? Which is, you know, the middle is always like the, the center, the heart of the word. So, so why is the letter Chaf there made small? Because publicly, basically... I'm putting it in my own words, he was holding it together. But when he was in private, then he, then he let it out. Okay? So, so, a fascinating just dimension of the way this word is spelled, again, it means like really to cry, is the, the, the first two letters, lamid vez, mean heart. So it's the, it begins with the word heart, and then you have this small chaf, which is already like the crying. So like the crying, he made it like, he tucked it away in his heart, you know? So meaning it, was, it wasn't as open, right? But it's very interesting that that word for crying begins with the word heart, you know? Because we always talk about the heart as the, as the center of emotions. But I want to give you kind of a thought that I had on this word, which I it just, it was, it was just kind of like a new way of thinking for me. So... So here you have this word, which means really to cry, and it's talking about the crying that Abraham experienced over the passing of his wife, Sarah. And, um, and we have this small chaf in the middle. So, and we said that Abraham was able to sort of like, you know, master his emotions on some level. But I thought to myself, why make the letter chaf small? You know, we don't talk about the letter chaf so much. So the letter Chaf is interesting. It's, it's the number 20. Okay, so now listen to this. And we, and we see here in the context of this word, it's really talking about the emotions. So I thought about it in this context. In Gematria, it goes like this. Aleph is 1, Bez is 2, Gimel is 3, Dalit is 4, He is 5, Vav is 6, Zion is 7, Ches is 8, Ted is 9, Yud is 10, and then the next number is 20. goes from 10 to 20, and that, when that, what, what that letter is, is Chaf. In other words, Chaf, which we're showing here, is, is, is sort of like the essence of this word for extreme emotions. 
All of a sudden, it jumps from 10 to 20. Chaf is 20. So, in other words, in other words, human beings have two tracks. We have this rationalistic, logical track, which is 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10. Everything is going in a very predictable, understandable way. And then all of a sudden, it flies off the rails. And you've got... 10, 20, wait, what happened to 11, 12, 13? You know, you know when, you, when you have emotions, it's sort of like, yes, yes, yes. And then I was thinking, um, maybe, you know, we could uh, go out to dinner or something like that. No, no! <laughs> you know, it's like, what, what, what just happened? You know, everything was proceeding in a very sort of like logical way. You know, we're getting along, all the rest. And then all of a sudden, the emotions kick in and it flies from 10 to 20, you know? So, so, so we have these two aspects to our, to our personality, to our humanity, right? One is, it's sort of like, there's this sort of like logical rationalistic side. And the other is this emotional side. And the emotional side is, is, is often capable of taking great leaps. And, um, I remember one of the things my, my father used to say, uh, he used to bring up this phrase all the time. And it's a little bit complicated to understand, but I'll explain it to you. But, but he would say all the time, you can't intellectualize an emotion. And what he, what he meant by that was that if you feel it, you feel it. You know what I mean? And a lot of times if you feel something, you can't explain it away. That, that's what he meant. You can't intellectualize an emotion. The emotion is the emotion. You're feeling it. You know? So, so what's interesting here is that this letter Chaf, which is 20, which is the center word for this word for really crying, that Abraham was able to make that small. Meaning to say that he was able to take that, these dramatic sort of emotional leaps that can happen to us, and he was actually able to, to contextualize it, and to make it small, and to integrate it into his heart. Remember, because... The two letters before that small chaf are, are, is the word lave, right? He was able to somehow master, master his emotions. And you see that reflected, I think, in a very interesting way in the word itself. So, so again, we began by saying that the Parsha is called Chai Sarah, and it's talking about, on one level, the death of Sarah, but at the same time, the, the, the title of the Parsha is the life of Sarah. And I think one of the ways that Avram was able to sort of like deal with this was the very fact that he understood that life doesn't end here. Right? If, if we understand that, that it just keeps on going and it keeps on going and it keeps on going. You know, one of the things that I noticed one time, I was, I was paying a shivako to someone, you know, we should just have simchas, but... Um, and, and behind him was the, the words of consolation that we say to a, to a mourner. Hamakom yinachem eschem betoch shar avleitzion v'yerushalayim. And so, you know, I was kind of, you know, interestingly, I'll tell you, the, the halacha, actually, the, the, the law, um, although this isn't that widely known, and it's, and it's certainly not that widely practiced, is that, again, we should just have happy occasions, but when, when someone visits another person on a shavakal, if they've lost someone close to them, you're actually supposed to um, just sit there. 
and allow the mourner to initiate any conversation. And in other words, and this actually is, is quite striking because I think that the instinct of most people is I'm paying, why am I paying the Shiva call? In order to comfort them. And how do I comfort them? To get their mind off their loss. Right? That's like the best thing that I could do is to get them to stop thinking about their loss. And so what, here you see the wisdom of the Torah at work is that the Torah is telling you, no, that is actually not your job. Your job is to be with them as they work through this emotion. Now, if they, they will have their own rhythm in terms of their own mourning and, and, how, and what their coping mechanisms are. They might want to talk about something else. Or they might want to talk about that. But let them work through the process and let them drive the process as opposed to you thinking that you're doing them a favor by distracting them from their emotion. Now, with this in mind, I want to tell you something very interesting. Um, it sounds like I'm switching topics. I'm not switching topics. I want to talk about someone who's a recovering drug addict right now. Okay? Now, let's say a person becomes uh, addicted to drugs or a regular user of drugs or alcohol or something like this. And there are all sorts of addictive behaviors, by the way. It's not just drugs and alcohol. It can be shopping. It can be pornography. It can be really anything. There's, unfortunately, there's millions of addictions out there lurking. Um, so let's say a person, I'm just kind of making up numbers right now. Let's say they start um, this behavior when they're, let's say, 14. And let's say they get over it at, I don't know, 25. Let's just say. Again, I'm just making up numbers. So when they get over it at 25, at that point, they are emotionally a 14-year-old. This is a very important thing to understand. In other words, you would think, okay, they recover at 25, 30, whatever it is, 18, whatever the number is. You would think, so then they go back to, they just sort of pick up where they had left before. No. No, they don't. They go back to when they started using and let me tell you why. And this actually, believe it or not, we're still on the subject of making a shiva call here. Um, <clears throat> the reason is because when a person engages in addictive behavior, what they're doing is they found some sort of avoidance technique from dealing with the troubling emotions that they're feeling at the moment. Whatever that technique is, whatever that escape is, and it could be as innocent as shopping to, to something as destructive as something else, right? And so as a result, they haven't developed the coping mechanisms of how to deal with their own, with their own uncomfortableness, with their own anxiety, with their own disappointment or depression. And so this other activity becomes a form of self-medicating. So, so, so it's very hard for a person as an adult as they get you know, sober or they leave an addiction because now for the first time in their life they have to develop the um, coping, emotional coping mechanisms of dealing with really uncomfortable feelings that they've been, ma they've been able to manage to avoid up until then. Okay? So again, how does this result to, how does this go back to making a shiva call? Because when you make a shiva call, the whole thing is, is that you're not trying to distract the person from their emotions. You're there as they work through their emotion. 
In other words, the Torah wants to give people a, um, a forum through which they can get in touch with the pain, but they're getting in touch with the pain in a place where they're surrounded by friends and family. So it's this, it's this sort of like loving place because there's a, remember we said like the letter Chaf, we go one through 10, one by one, and then Chaf appears and then we fly off to 20 and it's like the emotions kick in and we're off the rails. A lot of times when people feel this sense of discomfort, they think the whole world is falling apart at that moment. And if you can somehow deal with that discomfort, and yet you see that you're surrounded by friends and family, you see that the world is not crumbling apart. Now that's just essentially the, the Yitzhahara, basically, the evil inclination, the, the negative side trying to kind of undo your sanity, basically. But, but you open your eyes and you see you're surrounded by people. So it's, it's not the case. Now, with that in mind, I want to share with you something. I was in a kind of a very vulnerable period in my life uh, at the time that I saw this. And so it made an especially big impression on me. So uh, I know his name is Jared. <laughs> I don't know his last name. He's a, like a real estate mogul in New York. He's like a... He's like a it's like a big real estate guy, um, and uh, and um, you know, so he, I was reading about him, and he, he said something. He had, he was just getting in sort of like to, into like the big time world. He was relatively young compared to like the big New York real estate moguls. Like you know, I I, I really I've been in the entertainment industry professionally my whole life. So I don't know anything about the real estate industry, but I know that there are like these big New York real estate families and it's like it's a whole world unto itself and they, they own buildings and things like this. And it's like, I don't know, it's like, it's like a whole another thing, you know? So anyway, so he was just kind of, he was talking about how he has, was just sort of being welcomed into this world as sort of like this, you know, this junior member of, you know, this, this thing. And, he, and the, the whole thing, I mean, what I'm about to say, I'm sure will sound very obvious, but the whole thing is like, you want to buy a building when it's not at its highest price because the economy goes up and down. So rentals within a place will go up and down. And we're dealing with, because it's like, you know, you pay a certain rent. Like if, you, if, you, if you're thinking small, like, like you're thinking about what your own rent is, right? So you think, okay, that's kind of like the number of a rent. But if you're dealing with a large building, you, first of all, that rent is going to be much higher than whatever your home rent is. And then you have to multiply it by like a thousand or something like that, or thousands. And then that's just for one month. And when you talk about, you know, getting into a place like this, you're talking about years. So we're talking about, ultimately, we're talking about hundreds of millions of dollars, you know, in terms of these transactions. And if you catch the market at the wrong time, you can be out hundreds of millions of dollars, right? Which can completely wipe you out. So you have to, and then of course, no one wants to sell when the markets, you know, so anyway, this is a little bit ridiculous because here I have, I'm talking to you about real estate and I, I can know less than nothing about real estate, but I'm just trying to tell you, it's, it's a tricky business. So the guy buys one of the premier buildings in New York. Um, I think it was 555 Fifth Avenue. You know, if you grew up in New York, the, the, the numbers are really large at the top of the building. So it's a prominent building. And it's, that's considered like, you know, in, I guess, real estate circles, uh, like a prize property. 
he gets this like prize property. I think that was his introduction to like really big time real estate. And he buys it seemingly at the wrong time. Because after he buys it and he pays like a king's fortune for it, the market plummets. And now all of a sudden that same building is worth radically less. And now basically he's going to lose the building. And that's, you know, that's the end of that. You know what I mean? Like at that point, you know, we're just talking about two great numbers to get back in the game seemingly. And he gets this idea, which is to actually sell off parts of the building in order to maintain a majority control. So he doesn't really own the building in the sense that we talk about owning a building, but he was able to not lose the building. And that was considered like a very brilliant move that he did. Okay, all of this is introduction just to tell you this one point. So we're ready to, for the point. <laughs> Thus concludes the real estate seminar. <laughs> which I'm sure you're all very happy you didn't pay for. <laughs> so, so he said that a person has to learn how to live with uncertainty. And I thought, wow, that's really amazing. You know? Because I was thinking about that. I've, ever since I read that, I've been thinking about that. Because a lot of times we correlate on an emotional level. Again, people don't think about this. They just do it. We correlate certainty with happiness. To the extent that there's certainty in my life, right, I can be happy. To the extent that there's any level of uncertainty in my life, I can't give myself permission to be happy. I have held my happiness hostage to this notion of certainty. And what is certainty? What, is, what do we mean by certainty? Often it means a husband, a wife, a job, right? Uh, health. You know, all these, all these things, like all, all these things that we say that unless I have this, which will make my life more certain, I, I, I can't be happy because I don't have X, Y, and Z. But if a person allows themselves to live with uncertainty then this category, which is sort of like this sort of like X factor, which overshadows everything, if you can actually give it a name and, compart and compartmentalize it and call it uncertainty, then you can sort of like, you know, <clears throat> I mean, just to give you an example, do you ever see like, you know, like the, like sort of like the cartoon version, the 1930s hobo, who's like covered in rags, but he's like walking down the street with a jaunty way whistling, you know, smoking like a little cigar butt that he's just picked out of the gutter and he seems very happy. There's a guy who can live with uncertainty. <laughs> now, I'm not saying that that's the ideal. Wow, I'm so inspired to live the life of a hobo. You know what I mean? That's not, that's not the point. But the, but the point is, is that, is that there's so many other blessings coming down. And if you allow yourself to just sort of say, okay, I don't know about that yet. I don't know about that yet, whatever it is, but I'm not going to allow my not knowing about that to ruin my life, right? Then, then, that's, then that's a way of making the letter chath small, right? That's a way of being able to control the emotions, and to allow yourself to stay in the game and to, and to continue to, to live and, and really appreciate life. So, 
So I mentioned this 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 blessing that we say hamakom, where we where we um, comfort the mourners. It, it means in English, um, may the omnipresent console you among all other mourners of uh, Zion in Jerusalem, among the other mourners of Zion in Jerusalem. Um, just as a side note, before I just get to the point I wanted to raise earlier, um, there are many names in, in the Siddur and in the Chumash for God, each highlighting a different aspect of, of the one God. Um, Hamakom is one that you don't see that often. Hamakom means the place, so or the, the one who is everywhere, omnipresent. It's interesting that we use that name when comforting a mourner. And, and I think that kind of the consensus opinion on this is why are we comforting someone by calling God the place so that people should understand that they, they haven't lost the, the, their loved one. In other words, God who's absolutely everywhere also fills the realms of all souls. God, in other words, in other words that we think that when someone passes, that then now they're God. But if you understand that there's a larger context to reality, there's this world and there's the next world. Right? And that within God, they're all one. It's all one place. This world and the next world is all one place. Then all of a sudden you realize that you haven't lost that soul. They're there. They're right with you. Maybe not in body form, but they're no less there because all of us are inhabiting Hamakom, the place. Right? And, and when you contemplate that, you realize, wow, okay, that is, that is a comfort. And now, as I was sitting with someone, and I wasn't speaking, because I know, knew the halacha, and I was just sitting with him, and over his shoulder was the, was that, the prayer, hamakom. I thought, oh, well, I'm just kind of sitting here, so I might as well count the letters of hamakom. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's just what... Things I do when, <laughs> when I don't have anything to do, I'll just kind of, kind of go over thoughts, numbers, you know, try to figure stuff out. So I counted it up, and interestingly, I thought it was really fascinating. Hamakom, that 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 phrase of consolement, is exactly thirty-six letters. Thirty-six is two times chai. What did we say that this parsha is chaye sora, sora. It's about Sarah leaving this world, but the name of it is the life of Sarah. And Chai is plural, the lives of Sarah. In this world, how do you say life? Is Chai, that's 18. This world and the next world. 18 is life. What's, 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 the, what's the consolation that we're giving to the person? That, that the person didn't die, that there's life in this world and there's life in the next world. It's 36 letters. That the life hasn't the life hasn't ended, and that it all exists within the oneness of God, right? This is another level to the comfort when you realize that that life never ends. That life never ends. So, so we're talking about Abraham and Sarah, and and I want to I want I want to mention something. Uh, we touched on it a little bit last week, but it stopped recording, so I want to go deeper into the idea and say it again. So one of the things that I noticed, I was, I was, everybody knows that, that before it was Avraham and Sarah, that their initial names were Avram and Sarai, right? And then God changes their names. He, God changes the, 
Yud of Sarai to a He, and change and adds the letter He to Avram and makes him Avraham. Okay. Now I was thinking about that. You know, this is the really the the greatest couple that I guess ever lived. You know, maybe until Mashiach and Mrs. Mashiach. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like. Like this is this is it, you know, Abraham and Sarah. That's it. That that's it, you know. In fact, I got to tell you, just one of my favorite midrashim. I think it was my first favorite midrashim, mid midrash. Okay, my first favorite. To the extent that I ever had a favorite midrash, this was the first time I ever had a favorite midrash when I heard this, which is um, we know that the beginning of Chai Sarah is about Avraham is going to bury his wife. And we know he buries her in, in, in English, we call it the cave of the patriarchs. In, in Hebrew, it's Mars Hamach Pela. And the Zohar says that this was the entrance into the Garden of Eden. Very interestingly, also, the Medrash says, I learned from Rabbi Wolfson, that, that when Avraham was going about to buy it from Ephron, when Avraham entered he saw this like like this amazing light shining in this cave, and uh, Ephron just saw darkness. And to me, that's that just it's just you know just one of those uh, kind of like classic distillations of you know some people have the eyes to see and some people it's right there and they simply don't see it, you know. Like when we talk about the presence of God, it's like there are people, you, you look at the world and it's like, all you see is God. And other people, they look at the world and they go, you know, all I see is tragedy and injustice. And What are you talking about? And it's two people looking at the same things. You know? So, when Abraham, Abraham buys this cave and and as he's bearing Sarah, the Medrash says that, remember, Adam and Chava are buried there also. Adam and Eve. Avram is going to bury Sarah, and Chava gets out of her grave. And she says, I'm so embarrassed. I'm so embarrassed that Sarah is going to be buried next to me. And Avraham says to her and Adam, don't worry, we're here to fix it. We're going to fix it, right? So Abraham and Sarah are here to fix Adam and Chava, Adam and Eve. Amazing. Can you picture that? Can you picture that scene? Abraham holding the body of Sarah as Adam and Eve are getting out of their grave and are just all, you know, upset, and then they get comforted. I mean, amazing, amazing. Um, and you know we talked about it before and I've got to look it up I've got to give you the full Medrash on this but just I'm just continually amazed by this question that the Medrash asks how come God didn't put Avraham in the Garden of Eden why did he put Adam in the Garden of Eden can you imagine that this question is even asked amazing amazing thing and you know there are different opinions that are given um, but but one thing that I just want to say is that w- one of the things that Medrash seems to suggest is that 
No, this is the progression that basically Abraham is going to build on the mistakes of, of Adam. That he's going he's gonna to kind of kick it into gear. And what, what's telling about that is that, and I heard it from Rabbi Tatz, although I'm sure he got it from another place. My kishkas tell me maybe it's a Takuni Zohar or something. That the word breishis, the very, very first word of the Torah, which means beginnings, basically. That the, if, the, what, if you hear the word beginning, do you know what that, that means? That means that there's a middle and an end. In other words, the very word beginning is telling you that there's a middle and an end. So the very first word of the Torah is telling you that you're part of a story that's unfolding. You're part of a historical process which is unfolding and will culminate in Mashiach, by the way. So, so in other words, sometimes in our own life, we experience setbacks, we experience what we would call failure or whatever it is. But we have to understand that that's also part of the story. That, that, that Hashem could have put Avraham in the Garden of Eden. He didn't. He put Adam in the Garden of Eden. And since God knows everything, he knew that Adam was not going to succeed. Although we also say that Adam and Chava had free choice, and it's not a contradiction. But, but nonetheless, we see that our lives and history and everything like that, that there's no, if we've tried and we haven't succeeded, there isn't a steer, there isn't a contradiction. We have to understand that, that it's the way of the world that God in, implanted in creation that everything is a process, right? And so Avram and so the, so Adam and Chava give way to Avraham and Sarah, okay? And Avram and Sarai. Now we're going to talk about something deeper now. Become Avraham and Sarah. Now I want to say just again just just. It's another teaching. We're throwing out a lot of teachings, but we'll, we'll get back to the point. So I saw in the Magalia Mukos, right? Just someone who is in this world and the next. One of our greatest Kabbalists, like he was the chief rabbi of Krakow. So, so he points out Sarai. Sarai can't have children. Sarah has children. So what happens? God changes the letter Yud into the letter Hey. All of a sudden, she's able to have children. You know. It says God. It says in Gemara Menachos that God created the heavens and the earth with the letters Yud and Hey. God created the heavens with the letter Yud, and God created the earth with the letter Hey. Okay, so Yud stands for heavens. Hey stands for earth, right? And you know, in the name of Hashem, the holiest name of Hashem, the Yud Kei Vav Kei, and I always tell you that you have to picture it like a ladder, Yud at the top, then Hey underneath, then Vav underneath that, then Hey underneath that. So Yud represents, right, the highest, highest heavens, beyond, beyond, and the Hey is the bottom, that's the, that's the earth. So Sarai was, she couldn't have kids because she was like, her, her name ends with the letter Yud. It's like she's had this angelic, this heavenly quality. She was like an angel, basically. And Hashem changes that Yud, which stands for heaven, until He, which stands for earth. And now she's like grounded. She's in this world. 
She's part of this world and she's able to have kids. Amazing, amazing thing. Now Avram becomes Avraham. He gets the hay added to his name. Now here's what hit me. And it was like, wow, when I just realized this, I was like, wow. Do you know that the gematria of Avram and Sarai, when you add it together, is the same gematria as Avraham and Sarah? That's very unusual, because when you play with the letters, like we were talking about how from Yud is 10, and then Chaf is already 20, right? And then if you want to go to the next letter, Lamed, that's already, that's already 30. Or if you want to get to the last letter, Taf, then it starts going into hundreds. Kuf is 100, then, then Resh is 200, then Shin is 300, then Taf is 400. You know, if you're going to make a little adjustment of the letters, a lot of times they're giant numerical leaps. So if you're going to change two names and add two letters, it's almost certain that the new name will be very, very different numerically from the old name. So it's actually fascinating that Avram and Sarai is the same gematria as Avraham and Sarah. And how does it work, just so you have the numbers in your head? Because Sarai is, ends with a Yud, and it becomes a He. So that's minus five, right? And Avram becomes Avraham. He gets that five. So that's why it, it actually works out perfectly. But what's that telling us? What's the meaning of that? What's the meaning of that? So, you know, you can come up with your own explanation. <laughs> I'll suggest a couple. It seems to me that Abraham and Sarah, that basically, you know, they were, they were, they, they represent the redemption, right? Like the Midrash says, that, that, that they told Adam and Chava, don't worry, we're going to fix it. They represent the redemption. The redemption is always in this world. Remember, our, 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 our tradition is that Mashiach can happen at any moment. At any moment, Mashiach can happen. We say, right? Which means in the, in the blink of an eye, it can happen. It can happen at any moment. So, Avram and Sarai, same gematria as Avraham and Sarah, meaning to say that that potential is implanted in the world. But then the question is, okay, now what kind of vessel are you making out of yourself? And they, they were able to work within themselves, and they made themselves vessels. God, God made them vessels to bring, to bring children into this world. Now, now, I had to ask myself, you know, okay, so... Is there a word in the Torah that Avraham plus Sarah equals? <laughs> and what would that word be in the Torah? And what's the context of that word in the Torah? Like, wouldn't that be interesting to know? So there are only a few. But the one that really struck me was, um, the one that really struck me, because I said that Avraham and Sarah represent redemption, right? And that's a constant. That's why it's the same name either way, or the same number either way. So... So let's cut to the Jews are in Egypt. And by the way, it says one of the ways that the way that the Jews were able to survive in Egypt is because we just had in the Parsha, Avraham and Sarai go down into Egypt, right? Because there's a famine in the land and they're able to get out. 
And when they get out, the, the, the faro there, which is, you know, like an, the faro is like just a, an honorary title like czar or king or sheik or whatever it is. So, um, so, so he gave them a lot of presents and they became very rich. And they say, Maisim avos simin labanim, that the deeds of our forefathers are basically a microcosm for everything that's going to happen in the future. So what happens? The Jews go down into Egypt and they leave with all the gold and silver, all the treasure of Egypt. They leave, just like Avraham and Sarah. And they say that because Avraham and Sarah were able to really remain holy during this like episode in Egypt, the Jews themselves were able to survive and remain Jews in exile in Egypt because it was all sort of encapsulated in the lives of Avraham and Sarah. Okay? And we know the Zohar says that the redemption from Egypt is the model of the future redemption when Mashiach comes. So if the redemption from Egypt is the model for the future redemption, and we only were able to get out of Egypt because of Avram and Sarah, then you see Avram and Sarah contain within themselves the whole future redemption. Okay? Now also keep in mind, and then we're going to go into this word, also keep in mind that Avram and Sarah are, are fixing Adam and Chava, and Adam and Chava, had they not eaten from the tree, they just waited a little longer, they would have gotten into Shabbos, right? Because they were created at the end of the sixth day. And then the Shabbos would have come and it would have been Shabbos in the Garden of Eden. And you know, you go up on Shabbos, right? So this would have been the end of days. That would have been the completion of all of history right there if Abraham and Sarah could have just entered into Shabbos. Okay. So now Moshe is, is, is just been given the order to go and get the Jews out of Egypt. And Paro is like, you know, I don't have to tell you about Paro. Paro is like going to just make it as difficult as, as humanly possible. And, and, and Moshe and Aaron are there. This is um, chapter 5, verse 5 in, in Shmos. And they come to Paro for the very first time. Okay, this is the very first kind of like Moshe's on the scene, Aaron's on the scene. They're coming up to Paro. The people are working. They're dying. It's horrible. And they're saying, let, let the Jews out, right? And Paro says back to them, I'll read it to you in English first. Um, and Paro said, behold, the people of the land are now numerous and you would have them cease from their burdens? Right? Because the whole... The whole um, the whole fear of Paro was basically he wanted to work them to death. He, he, they had become, the Jewish population had become so large that he, he had to enslave them because he was afraid that maybe they'll take over Egypt or maybe an invading army will attack Egypt and the Jewish population will side with the invading army, what we call the fifth column, and, and then Egypt will be defeated. So he wants to contain them and make them work as hard as possible. So he says, the people of the land are numerous and you would have them cease from their burdens. In other words, you want to take them out of their burdens. So what's that word? Cease from their burdens, right? So that word, very interestingly, is vehishpatem. Vehishpatem. Right? Um, so, 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 you can translate that as have them rest, 
right? Now, where do we say Vehishvatem is Gematria, Avraham, and Sarah, right? You want to hear something amazing? Do you know what the root of that word is? Shin base tough. Shabbos. <laughs> In other words, the people are the people are burdened and you want to bring Shabbos to them? And what is Shabbos? What did we what did we just say? What is what are the what is the end Shabbos, what do we say? Vihishbatem, you want to bring them to Shabbos? This is the Gamatria of Avraham Sarah. What, what, is the, what is the messianic period called? Yom Shekulo Shabbos, the day that will be all Shabbos. What did we say? That Abraham and Sarah are a microcosm of the entire redemption, which is Shabbos, which is the great Shabbos. Right? So, so, so there you see the gematria of Abraham plus Sarah equals Shabbos, which is what Moshe is trying to affect. Moshe is trying to bring the redemption. In other words, what is he bringing to the Jews in Egypt? How is he getting them out? He's giving them Abraham and Sarah. And Paro, like on some like weird soul intuitive level, is like, you want to give them Abraham and Sarah? <laughs> like, no way! No way! No way! So, you know, all of us are children of Avraham and Sarah. And you should know, even converts, even converts are children of Avraham and Sarah. How? One of the most amazing Torahs I ever learned, I heard it in the name of the Zohar, which is that when Avraham and Sarah couldn't have children, right? They were still intimate with each other. They were still together. And so during those um, occasions of intimacy, they may not have been producing bodies because for whatever reason they weren't able to have children at that point, but their union produced souls. They were actually minting souls. And those souls were the souls of future converts. An amazing thing that, you know, you have... So all of us are, are, are whether you're Jewish or you've converted to Judaism, you have, you, they are... We are children of Avraham and Sarah in the realest way. And that goes for today. And, um, you know, we're, we're, we're so lucky. We're so lucky to have that as our heritage because, you know, um, Rabbi Wolfson talks about, and maybe we'll just wrap it up with this. Rabbi, Rabbi Wolfson talks about... Um, I, I guess we could call it the genetics of faith, right? Which is, you would say, wait a second, the genetics of faith, that those two words don't really go together. But what he says is that, isn't it interesting that you see like a baby spider is born and is able to weave these incredible webs? Who, where, did, where do you see the, the spider enrolling in, 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 in web spinning school, mm-hmm. right? Right, he has to apply... You know, yeah. He's got to just take his WATs, right? Uh, <laughs> right? Like, he just has it. Where do you see, he says that, Rabbi Wilson gives that example about a, a spider and a, and a web. He, and he gives another example. Uh, beavers are able to make dams that people say, 
you know, I've never talked to an engineer about this, but people say that engineers actually find beaver-made dams quite amazing. Where does a beaver who, you know, is just an animal, knows n nothing, know how to construct an actual dam? That's like building a house, kind of. Like, there's, like, there's, it's not just you pile something. Like, there's some, there's a little m more to it, right? Or even to know to make a dam. Where does a child, and as soon as a child is born, how does a child know to suckle at its mother? And to do it in a way, you have to create sort of like a, a vacuum over it. It's not just a, a normal, like you just put your mouth there. There's like a certain skill to it. How does a baby know that? So they're born with this, this, this intuitive knowledge. So, so Rabbi Wilson goes on to say that Jews are actually born with this genetically passed knowledge of the oneness of God. And that this is a gift that we've gotten, an inheritance that we've gotten from Avraham and Sarah. That, that in our, I don't know what the word would be. I don't know if you can say DNA. I don't know if that's the right word. Maybe it's just the word soul or whatever it is. We have an, we're born with an intuitive knowledge of the oneness of God. And this is a very, very precious legacy, right? Because as science and mathematics and everything um, continues to advance, everything points to this universal oneness. Everything is pointing to this. And this is a campaign that we've had to open the eyes of the world to this, to this fact, which the whole world is rallying to at, at different stages of speed, but in all sectors, all at once. So, so Hashem should bless us that we should really value the gifts that we've been given, Amen. that we should understand that um, there's a certain degree of uncertainty in life that everyone experiences, Right? Like the, the great quote, if you, if, if you know someone who doesn't have any problems, that just means you don't know them very well. <laughs> right? So everyone is going through something, you know? Um, and, but that doesn't mean that we have to hold our happiness hostage to a, a sense of certainty. Right? We can understand that there's, that's just one of the elements in our lives that we're just going to have to deal with is uncertainty and put that in a category and deal with that responsibly, but definitely compartmentalize it. Don't allow it to take over your life, right? Um, and also to understand that the emotions have a bit of a life of their own, <laughs> but that if you understand that, that God, one of the names of God is Hamakom, Meaning that wherever you go, wherever you do, you're within that place. You're within the place of God in this world and in the next world. And that it never ends. And that, and that our loved ones are, are always there, right? Maybe in a body, maybe not in a body, but we're together no matter what. Then, um, then we can really sort of have some of the foundations to be able to really appreciate the life that we're living right now and to do the most with it. Okay. Okay. Oh.